have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. That's page 1021 of your pew Bibles. If you do not have a Bible, be sure to take that Bible home with you, and we can even get you another Bible uh, to meet your needs. 1 Corinthians 13, we want to look at the first three verses, and Lord willing, come Father's Day, we will uh, look at the uh, remaining verses. So with that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for, for God's Word. The Apostle Paul writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you for uh, what today represents and why we are gathered here. May we lift up your holy name as we sang. Let us honor the women in our lives, mothers, wives, sisters, aunts, grandmothers, everyone, Lord, that um, we see what a gift you have given us in them. But most importantly, may you open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouths, our hands and our feet, that we would take your word, rightly interpret it, and rightly apply it to our lives. And may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. May be seated. Story goes that Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev once told a story that in Soviet Russia there was some issues with petty theft, particularly among factories. And so the communist country sent out guards to, to cut down on all of the uh, thievery. And in one factory, it was particularly bad. And so, so they sent a specific guard there. And, and one day, he was, he was watching to see what all the employees were doing. He saw this guy with, with the, that look on his face. You know, the look that says he's, he's, he's up to something. What he was carrying was a wheelbarrow full of uh, odd oddities. And so he stopped the young man and, and it says, what is it that you got here? He says, oh, oh, sir, it is nothing but sawdust and shavings in this wheelbarrow. Well, he looked through it all and, and he couldn't find anything but the sawdust and shavings and told him he can just go on. Now, this continued day after day after day after day. And every day, the guard would stop him, go through all the sawdust and shavings, and then let him just go on until eventually the guard got tired of it. Why in the world are you doing this? What is it that, that, that you are doing here? He says, well, I am guilty of smuggling something with these wheelbarrows. He says, what are you smuggling with all the sawdust and shaving? He goes, I'll tell you what I'm smuggling. Wheelbarrows is what I'm smuggling. <laughs> you see, the guard was distracted by the wrong thing and thus missed the thing he was supposed to catch. I don't know about you, but I'm easily distracted. I, I, I don't have ADHD. What I had growing up was B-O-Y-S, and it always involved a spanking whenever it would act up. But, but, but I am easily, easily distracted, as I'm sure all of us are. And what Paul warns here in these opening three verses is, to, is a distraction from the main thing, and that is love. Now, we need to understand here what love is, because I don't know if you've noticed, we're, we as a society are a bit confused by it. 
Unlike the Greek language, what we've done in English is, is we, we have put all the ideas and meanings of love into a single word, and then we wonder why, when we use the word love, it lacks the clarity necessary. After all, the way I love my wife is not the way I, I, I loved our dog before he died, right? That's two different loves. It, we use the same word. It's not the way I, I, I love hometown pizza from Owington, Kentucky. That is the best pizza you will ever get this side of the Mississippi. And we don't worry about what happens west of the Mississippi. Let's be honest, Kentuckians, right? So it's the best pizza around. If you haven't done it, then, then you have not lived your life. But in the Greek language, there are multiple words for love that I actually find quite helpful. Let's look at them as briefly as we can. The first is the word storge. This describes the indescribable love of a parent for the child, a child for the parent. This is, this is familial love. This is a love among relations. And this really explains why every holiday, perhaps on an occasional weekend or trip, you put up with Uncle Bob, but you won't put up with co-worker Bob, right? You think, well, is, is, is Bob going to come to Thanksgiving? Yeah. Oh boy, but he's my uncle and I got to love him, right? You can't explain it. Right? Other than it is storge love. Uh, then there is phileo love. And uh, you're lucky that when I translated this computer, you didn't get the Greek letters. Uh, that, that is just unfortunate because I was going to put that on the quiz. Phileo love is love among friends. This, this is where we get the word Philadelphia. Perhaps you're familiar with this. Phileo adelphoi, meaning brotherly, adelphoi being brotherly love. Now, this type of love is not related to blood or intimacy. Rather, it is, it is a love between friends. It can be deep, which is something we've lost in, in our society for various reasons. Now, these two words, storge and phileo, show up in the same verse. It's the only place you'll find storge, but it, it's, it's not alone. It is here in Romans 12. Love one another. You'll notice there it's phileo storge as a compound word, putting two words for love together to, to emphasize the sort of love that, he, that he's describing. Your translation may use the word devote. Devote yourself one to another with brotherly affection. That's actually the phileo word. Outdo one another in showing honor. He puts both ideas in singular verse. And phileo shows up other places in the New Testament. Then there is eros. You see, I was using Greek letters, so it doesn't show up well in, in English. But eros, E-R-O-S. Now, uh, this comes from the Greek god eros, who was the son of Aphrodite and the Greek equivalent to the Latin word Cupid. So now you get it, right? Now this is, we get English words obviously from this Greek word. This is romantic love. This isn't love between family or friends. This is love between husband and wife. Finally, there is agape love. Agape love, if, if you were to take all the writings of the ancient Greeks and Romans, and they all wrote in Greek, and, and you were to take that and you were to compare which of these four words they preferred to use. What you'll find is they'll use these first three a whole lot. They rarely use agape. But if you were to take the New Testament to do the same experiment, what you'll find is they rarely use the first three. But they really love to use this word agape. Agape is the greatest definition of love. 
It means, I'm sure you're familiar with, it's, it's, it's unconditional love. It is sacrificial love. It is, it is an other-serving love. It is, it is to put the needs and the wants and the desires of other people ahead of myself. This is why Paul will add later in what is known as the love chapter here in 1 Corinthians 13 that this type of love, agape love, never fails. In fact, I would say that your storge love, your family love, will never grow in intimacy and will never grow in depth apart from agape love. Your, 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 your phileo love among friends will never grow in, in depth without agape love. Your eros love will never grow in any sort of depth without agape love. It is Jesus himself who defines what this love really looks like and means. In John chapter 15, he says, Greater love has no man than this, than to lay one's life down for his friends. Notice their connection. Friends, that's phileo. But here he's describing agape. And here, Jesus, in mere days after stating this, what does he do? He dies for his friends, you and me. Likewise, Paul will write in Romans 5, God shows his agape for us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet rebels, while we were yet wicked, while we were yet lost, while we still didn't glory and honor his name, what did Christ do for us? He died for us. Despite our anger and animosity and hatred and everything else, Christ lovingly gave himself on our behalf. This is love. And this is the word Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 13. But you'll notice here in these three verses, he wants you to see there is agape, but it's easy to be distracted away from agape. Thus a cheapening of what, what this type of love really is. Notice he begins to talk about words and love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, what you need to see here is, is, is the use of hyperbole or hyperbole if you're from the South. And, and Paul uses hyperbole to, to, to make a finer point. And, and, and that's important for when it comes to our interpretation. Notice he begins here, if I speak with the tongues of men. And the temptation here is for us to have interpretation that wasn't intended. Let me ask you, what is a tongue of man? Well, it's the thing that's in your mouth. It's a muscle, I, I think. I think I remember that from class in high school or something. But, but it's, it's a tongue, and, and, and it, it's, 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 it's part of your anatomy. That is it. That is a tongue of man. But what is meant here isn't the physical tongue, but is actually it means language, right? The tongues of men, right? It means language. In fact, this word translated tongue means language. It describes English and Greek and German and Russian and, and, and Southern, right? It means all of these things. So, so what is he saying here? He's really describing eloquence. If I could speak with, with the greatest of eloquence of men. In fact, in fact, if, if I was so eloquent, I could speak with the tongues of angels. And here's where we get into an immediate theological interpretation that, that causes people to get excited. Because chances are, you're, you're probably reading into what Paul means here that Paul never intended. What we like to do is, is, is some traditions, not, not primarily in Southern Baptist tradition, or certainly not, not this church, is, is we practice, or they practice what is known as tongues. It's mystical, esoteric, to be unfair, gobbledygook, okay? It's, 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 it's odd. It's, it's not a real language. And, and so what people will say is, this is a heavenly tongue. And they would come to 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, and say, see, it's angelic language. Now, now I, I, I just, let's look at two things. First of all, is the issue of hyperbole. 
Notice in, in that Paul does this, verse 1. If I can speak with the tongues of angels, or verse 2. If I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. Now, who has all mysteries and all knowledge? It ain't you. It's Jesus, right? It's this hyperbole. Uh, verse uh, 2 also. If I had all faith so as to remove mountains. He's not saying, hey, you're, you're not a good Christian unless you can move the Himalayas to Kansas so we can cut down on some of the wind. That's not what he's saying there. Or in verse 3, if I give everything away and, and allow my body to be burned. Well, he doesn't mean go out and light a fire, right? It's hyperbole. So too, this is hyperbole. He's not saying there's a literal language. Furthermore, secondly, notice, angels show up in the Bible and they do talk. What language do they use? For example, there's Mary, minding her own business, middle school girl. And an angel shows up and, and says, Mary, you're pregnant. And she's like, whoa, I can't understand the word you're saying. You're talking with the tongues of angels. No. Later, whenever Christ is born and a choir of angels show up in the field with shepherds and they sing, glory to God in the highest. No, peace on earth, good men. And what did the shepherds say? Wow, that sounded beautiful. It's a shame I didn't understand what they said. When Sarah, Abraham's wife, laughs at the suggestion from the divine beings, these angels, that she would become pregnant, she didn't laugh because they, they looked funny, but because she understood what they were saying. The angels speak vernacular. So again, the point isn't some esoteric uh, supposed language, but it is to say, if I had the eloquence of angels, if I had the greatest eloquence of men, and here's the absence here, but have not love. His point there, what good are lofty words without agape? How powerful an impact is eloquence when it is saturated with hypocrisy? It is saturated with deadness and coldness. It's not powerful at all, is it? This is one of the things you've probably heard is, is don't meet your heroes, right? Let's just say it's, it's a musical artist, Elvis, whoever, whoever your meets, Britney Spears, but, but whoever it might be for you, okay? You're not supposed to meet your, your, your heroes. Why? Because you, you read their speeches, you listen to their songs, and you believe this is who the person is, and then you meet them, and you realize, hey, them. They clearly didn't write that those songs, right? So, too, we can be as eloquent as the angels, yet without love, what does it matter? If I speak with the languages of men, and armed with sound theology, great wisdom, degrees and credentials. Yet what matters most, Paul is saying here, is agape love. Isn't this what we saw last week with the Ephesian church? You've got great theology, dear church. You've, you, you're, you're, you're keeping false teaching at bay. You're persevering through, through hardship and suffering. Yet you lack one thing. It's the most important thing. Love. Parents, what good is a comforting word, sound advice, or stern correction if you do not smother your children with love? I received good advice from, from seminary, and I've always tried to keep this in mind in ministry and coaching and in life, and that is for every one word of correction, you need 10 words of encouragement. I think there's something there. And what is the result of, of eloquence without love? He says, I, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I think he's he making two points here worth, worth highlighting. The first is, eloquence without love is noise. It is noise. You know, whenever I was a, a little kid, my, 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 my 
sister was in color guard. And so we go to all the football games and my favorite instrument, every time, the one time we scored a touchdown, but, but every, you know, we got to where we, we had to uh, uh, play the music every time we got a first down because at least they could play three times in a game. But, but my favorite instrument to watch was, of course, the cymbals. You know, that was cool. I, was, I told my sister, like, when I get to be in middle school and high school, I'm going to learn to play the cymbals. Because um, I was lazy, obviously, when it comes to music. And, of course, I never did that. But I was thinking when I was reading this text, what if, what if one day, you know, I, 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 got, a, I got a special card. It gave me a pass. And, and I could go uh, to an orchestra, and they're playing Beethoven. You know, professional musicians. And they said, you know what, preacher, once you come up, we're going to let you play the cymbals. Now, I won't know when you're supposed to bang the cymbals. I won't. So what I will do is just make sure everyone hears me and knows I'm there. <laughs> right? And so I'm just going to bang them and bang them and bang them, right? And what's going to happen is you hear noise. You don't hear music. I can illustrate this another way. The best and only Saturday Night Live skit you ever need to watch is the cowbell skit. You know what I'm talking about? Right? You got the group going and Will Ferrell's doing this. Right? He's just going at it. Now, it's, it's a funny skit because there's a song to be played. And the, what the band is, is saying is this, there's, a, there's noise with this song. If we didn't have the noise, it's a great song. And what's funny is the producer comes in and he says, guys, I got a fever, right? And the only cure is more cowbell. And it's nonsense. But how many of us, we know there is a problem in the world. And what we offer is what we think is eloquence, but is in reality noise because it lacks agape gospel love. I think there's another meaning he has here, and that is eloquence without love is empty. In the New Testament times, there, there were pagan uh, rituals honoring various gods that included speaking in ecstatic noises that were accompanied by smashing gongs, clanging cymbals, and blaring trumpets. And what I think Paul is picking up on that, they, they, it was common particularly in the city of Corinth with these pagan rituals, is, is he's saying, look, is, is that eloquence and words without love is empty ritual. It's just empty ritual. It's a going through the motions. You say things you think you have to say when you're supposed to say it, but, but when it isn't saturated with love, what good is it really? Gospel love, on the other hand, is gentle and patient and encouraging and humble and kind. What if our words, eloquent or not, were smothered with love? You tell me, which one would you, would you prefer? Would you prefer someone who's eloquent but hypocritical? Or someone who is less eloquent, inarticulate, but loving? Words must be accompanied with gospel love. Do we not believe and treasure everything Christ said, not simply because it was well said, but because we know he loves us enough to die for us? It isn't just words with, and love. It's also wisdom and love Paul's concerned with. We see it there in verse 2. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Again, we need to see hyperbole here, and it shows up in two places. The first, he says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Look, you ain't going to get there. Only God is omniscient and all the other omnis, right? 
He alone has that. However, we do see, particularly in the Old Testament and coming into the New Testament, the supernatural power of revelation and wisdom. The prophet like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Elijah or Moses would would receive revelation from God and, and, and give godly counsel, godly wisdom. Having received from God who has all this, he can deliver uh, to uh, you know, the king, whoever it might be. And Paul says, even if I had all of that, all of this wisdom from God. Secondly, notice here, he says, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains. Again, his concern isn't to, to put a geographical a tourist attraction in Oklahoma. And if you can't do that, you're not a person of faith. That's not his point. Jesus does, makes the same hyperbole in Matthew 17. You have little faith. If you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you can remove mountains. Neither one of them is wanting us to, to, to try this literally. But rather the see that our faith is insignificant unless it is smothered with love. You can't separate faith from love. You can't do it at all. So if I have all the wisdom of the world coming directly from God and I believe everything that God has given me, I have all the power I could ever want to influence this world, yet I lack love, he says. What good is it? If I were spiritually mature, deep in my faith, gifted with wisdom that rivals Solomon, what good is any of this? A father who gives fatherly advice falls on deaf ears if he's an absentee father. Discipleship apart from spiritual disciplines does not form spiritual children, but the opposite. So mom and dad can sit down and say, well, because the Bible says so, or because Jesus tells us this, or because this is what we believe, but if it is inconsistent with the love they share with each other, with their children, with those outside the family, how will it be perceived? This love's not real. So if I have all of this, Paul says, yet without love, I am nothing. Have you ever considered that wisdom naturally produces love? For love is the work of God who is omniwise. He is all wise. After all, we live in such a world where, where we think it is wise to say, we want peace, burn the city down. We want, we want mercy, we, we want more peace, we, we want this or that. So let's storm people who disagree with us. That'll do it. We want love, so give us lust. Give us entertainment and we'll be content. When's the next season coming out? Hurry, hurry, hurry. It's not wisdom. But here comes the gospel. If we would but sacrifice, if we would but understand Christ upon the cross, wisdom will be saturated with love because love is wise. What I am witnessing online and in the culture is a bunch of wannabe seers with opinions they think the world needs to hear. But they lack the most important thing, love. Look, make sure people know you love them before they know what you think about anything else. No wonder we talk past each other. No wonder we talk over each other. We claim wisdom. We lack love. Love. Finally, there is works and wisdom. Works and love, rather. 
Notice he says there in verse, verse 3, if, if I give away all that I have. So this is two parts. The first is the giving away. This word give means to dole out in small qualities, and it signifies a long-term systematic program of giving away everything one possesses. Now, this is quite incredible because the rabbis only required, you never have to give give away more than 20% of your wealth or possession. So, so, so Paul is saying, no, 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 that's not enough. What if, what if instead of 20 or 25, what if I gave away 100%? And I'm just constantly, a little bit at, 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 at a time, just, just giving it away. In fact, more of that, not only do I give away all of my possessions, what if I give my very body? If I deliver up my body to be burned? There's two ways to read that, uh, and there's arguments on both sides. I know where I lean. One is, is Paul is suggesting, what if I, I, I offer my body to be branded, to be burned? And this is what, a, this is what would happen to a Roman slave. And we have uh, evidence, particularly from Clement of Alexander and other patristics, early Christians, is that they would occasionally uh, volunteer themselves, sell themselves into slavery so that the money that is raised from that can then be given to the poor and needy. And let's be honest, Christians. You and I ain't going to do that because we don't take the gospel serious enough. I've got a dollar left over from McDonald's. You can have it if you spend it the way I tell you to. Here, Christians say, I'll tell you what, you can brand me and I will be your slave for 10 years if with the money that is raised, it'll be a blessing to other people. You and I ain't there yet, American Christian. Got a long way to go to get there. Maybe we should start working on it. You want to change the world. Understand this sort of agape love. Or what Paul is referencing here is actually a, a burning at the stake. Now, some will say there's no precedent for this, but there certainly are examples of it. You, 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 can, you can understand that virtually every culture has burned people to death. The Old Testament has this. There's a little story called Rack, Shack, and Benny. I, I'm sorry, that's Veggie Tales. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, forgive me. Everything I, I learned in life, I learned from vegetables, um, just not at dinner time. Um, later in history, we see that in the Roman Empire, Christians are burned at the stake. Perhaps the most famous example is Polycarp. I encourage you to read the full story yourself. But he is, he is at the Colosseum uh, and about to be executed as a Christian. And, 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 and the, the, the Caesar says, if, or the governor really says that if you will just leave behind Christianity, if you will b- b- make sacrifice to Caesar and the gods, we'll let you go free. There Polycarp says, 86 years I have served Christ. He never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme the king? There's, there's the uh, problem. They're going to kill him for that. How can I blaspheme the king who saved me? In fact, the story goes, they went to tie him to the stake. and says, that won't be necessary. I'll die for the one who died for me. Perhaps that's what Paul has in mind regardless. You see his point that if I were to go to the extreme of being branded or burned, if I were to go to the extreme, be as charitable as possible, Maybe be as good as possible. Go to the extreme of, of whatever you can imagine. Yet, if I lack love, what good is it? Now, I look at this and I think, who in the, who, who in the right mind would do this? And then I turn on Twitter, right? <laughs> you know, I think, oh, a lot of people would do this. Why? Do not underestimate our need, all of us, to feel morally superior. That is perhaps more important than life itself, perhaps air itself, 
That if I can feel as if I am better than him, look at my lawn, isn't it just pristine? I tell you what, I'm responsible homeowner. Look at me, I use language that doesn't offend other people. Unlike that guy down the street. See his bumper stickers? Mine are better. Isn't that what we've been arguing and doing for the last 12, 13 months? Trying to up each other to see who is more morally superior. And we do it our own unique way. But if I can feel better than someone else, then I must be better than someone else. So yeah, I'll go to the stake. As long as they think I'm a good person. Notice Paul says that you can go to such extremes. Yet without love, it profits nothing. Jesus says something similar to this in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember Matthew chapter 6, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward of your fathers in heaven. Right? This is moral superiority. This is virtue signaling. This is doing so that other people can get online and retweet what you say, share what you, the picture you put on there, and your video and everything else, and applaud you because, wow, what a great person. Honey, don't you wish I was a husband like him? Right? That's what we want. And what Jesus then, he goes from here and he says, oh, let me give you a few examples. What if you're praying? Some will want to make sure everyone can see how holy and righteous they are because they can pray these long prayers and use King James English. They were never due at the restaurant, but boy, aren't they impressive. Some would, would give and they make sure the check is larger than the last check. They make sure the cameras are rolling. People got their cell phones down. It's like, wow, don't you wish you were, you were as charitable as this person. Some would fast, not Baptist obviously, but some will fast. And they make sure everyone knows how hungry they are and how spiritual they are. And all this And Jesus says they have their reward. It's in the applause of men and women. That's not you. It's not you. You love. You give. You serve, you do, not for your own praise and glory, but for the good of others and for the glory of your Savior. If what motivates you is virtue signaling and not love, it is empty. What must motivate all of us must be gospel love. Jesus did not come to be loved by the world, but to show love to the world, and he did it at the cross. He died for a people who rejected him. Why? Because agape love is deeper than emotional attachment, but it is divine itself, which should motivate us in the home, which should motivate us in the workplace, in the marketplace, and in this church should be sacrificial, other-serving, deep gospel love. After all, this is what the Corinthians are missing, isn't it? Uh, chapter 13, we often isolate it so that we can read it at weddings. And in, in so doing, we miss its, 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 its original purpose. And, and the whole book of Corinthians, they ain't getting along. They must be Baptists. They, they, they just every decision made, every business meeting they have turns into an argument. And so in chapter 12, starting in chapter 12, they're arguing over spiritual gifts. What are they doing? Well, the Lord blessed me with this. I'm better than you. What a great, eloquent teacher I am. You know what? If it weren't for me and my administrative gift, this place couldn't run for nothing. No, 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 no. You don't understand. I'm working with the children over here. You ain't got the patience that the Lord has given me. Let me tell you, I'm a saint. Wow, how awesome you are. How great you are, right? How great thou art, right? And then Paul, he says, you don't understand. God gives you a gift so that it can benefit the body of the church. The eye should never say to the hand, I don't need you because, because you can't see. The hand should never say to, to the leg, I don't need you because you can't grip. So too, believers shouldn't say to other members of the church, you're unnecessary here because I got this, don't worry about it. 
We serve and we are served for the glory of God by other members. In chapter 14, he's going to deal with the issue of tongues and languages in particular. But right here in the middle, Paul says the most important thing with this issue isn't what gifts you have, it's the thing you lack. That is love. It doesn't really matter if you have prophetic powers if you do not love. It doesn't really matter if you have administrative gifts but you do not have love. It doesn't matter if you're patient with children, but you have not love. It doesn't matter if you can eloquently speak and you can write with, 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 with the best, yet you lack love. Does any of that stuff matter? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And if that's true for the church, isn't it true for your home? Isn't what your home needs, isn't more um, self-help resources? A 10-step blog that can get you through your issues. No, what your home needs is gospel love. Where mom and dad love each other with gospel love. And their marriage is shaped by the gospel. What parents and children need is gospel love for each other. Shaped and discipled by the cross. So let it rule your home. Let it define your marriage. Let it dominate our congregation. See, agape love is unconditional, self-sacrificial love. It's a love that benefits others, it serves others, and it sacrifices the self. This is the secret to godly motherhood. This is the secret to godly womanhood. Only upon meditating on the cross can we understand what true love is. Only by looking to the cross can we love others the way Christ has loved us. This is what Paul wants us to see. Came across the poem. It's pretty good. Simply called 1 Corinthians. It's, it's a reworking of this chapter for mothers. It says, if I live in a house of spotless beauty with everything in its place, but have not love, I am a housekeeper, not a homemaker. If I have time for waxing, polishing, and decorative achievements, but have not love, my children learn cleanliness, not godliness. If I scream at my children when they don't follow instructions, get frustrated and fault them for every mess in our house, and have no grace and love, my children learn that mom cares more about having things done exactly her way than about listening to the needs and hearts of her children. Love leaves the dust in search of a child's laugh. Love smiles at the tiny fingerprints on a newly cleaned window. Love wipes away the tears before it wipes up the spilled milk. Love picks up the child before picking up the toys. Love accepts that I am the ever-present mommy, the taxi driver to every childhood event, the counselor when my, parent, my children fail or are hurt. Love crawls with the baby, walks with the toddler, runs with the child, then stands aside to let the youth walk into adulthood. Before I became a mother, I took glory in having it all together. Now I glory in knowing that God's in control and His grace is sufficient for each day. All the projections I had for my house and my children have faded away into insignificance, and what remains are the memories of my children. Now there abides in my home, scratches on most of the furniture, dishes with missing place settings, and bedroom walls full of stickers, posters, and markings. But the greatest of these is love, Christ's love that sustains me and sustains us. Let's pray.
My Father, I ask you would be so kind that we would grasp the beauty of this love. Lord, I don't know the needs of everyone here, but I know the answer of everyone here is found and rooted in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Here we're talking about love. This is what we need in our lives and our world right now. It's love, and not just any kind of love. It must be agape love. Perhaps there are some here who are still holding on to bitterness and anger, have questions that have yet been, been, been answered. May, may they meditate and come to the cross, laying there at the cross all their rebellion, all their shame, all their guilt, all their, all their, 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 their sin, and, and in there discover the love of Christ for someone even like them. May mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, children and students, young and old, may we grasp the beauty of love. May we see love thrive in our homes, thrive in our relationships, thrive in our workplaces, thrive in our church, and dominate our lives. But it isn't until we meditate upon the cross where Christ laid his life down for his friends, even while we were yet sinners. If we can grasp but a piece of this love, the world would change again. Convict us in this time of invitation, we pray.